Hey, I'm Steph. I'm Alex. And this is Not Today. much technical difficulty we are live we're live hello how are you i am good how are you i'm fantastic i'm riding high off the fried rice right now oh sure Mm -hmm. fried rice a little broccoli um i have a question for you Mm -hmm. have you seen those videos recently where it's like 147 days to christmas and it's like banging like jingle bell rock and they're making christmas cookies have you seen those no it's august It's freaking August, guys. But I do bring this up because obviously we love Christmas. But anyway, it's kind of relevant because this story takes place in December of 1972. So not that the year year has anything to do with it. But our story starts on December 29th, 1972. So it's around Christmas time. And it just made me think of those videos where they're like na, 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 na. it's 136 days till christmas and i'm like bro it's august but anyway <laughs> let's let's jump in shall we <laughs> how far out did these people start to make those videos probably like half a year away literally huh yeah oh my god it's crazy people are obsessed i mean yeah. i get it christmas is banging but it's August. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. Maybe enjoy the summer. Well, know? yeah. Enjoy the summer. There's so many things until Christmas. There's like... Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving. No, Halloween first. Halloween, Thanksgiving, then Christmas. And every other holiday that other people celebrate that I'm ignorant about. But I'm sure there's other ones. Anyway, this is so unimportant. Why don't we jump <laughs> into the story? Let's do it. Okay. So our story takes place... Like I said, on December 29th, 1972, Eastern Airlines Flight 401 was on its way from New York to Miami, Florida. At the time, they were flying the most advanced passenger jet in the world, which was the L-1011 TriStar. It was the quote-unquote dawn of the jumbo jet era. The L-1011 TriStar? Do you know her? The classic? (laughs) I have no idea what this is. Okay, I was like, you're fucking with me. I don't know anything about planes. This airplane had the most advanced technology of the day. It was top-notch. It was large and spacious. It was quiet. And the service on board was first rate. Even the service was first rate? Absolutely. Is this a commercial? Hi. (laughs) Are you selling? I work for Eastern Airlines. (laughs) I'm pretty sure it doesn't exist anymore. But if you go back in time, check us out. Anyway... Bob Loft was the captain for Eastern Airlines Flight 401 and had been with the company for over 30 years at the time. Bob's first officer and co-pilot was Albert Stockstill, and his second officer slash flight engineer was Donald or Don Repo. Also in the cockpit with the men was Angelo Donadeo, who was an off-duty maintenance expert for the airline. However, he wasn't technically on duty. He was just catching a ride back to Miami and happened to sit in the cockpit with the men. He's just hanging out. He's kicking it. The flight from New York to Florida is fairly short, and the plane had been descending down into Miami. There were 176 people on board that night. Most of them were headed south for New Year's. Among those passengers was Ron and Lily Infantino, who at the time had only been married for 20 days. And Ron Infantino said that the flight itself was smooth. It was pitch black outside because it was really late. It was around midnight. But good weather, just dark out. But good vibes. (laughs) Good weather, dark out, good vibes. You know how it goes. Right. And the plane was in its final descent. And in the cockpit... They were going through their landing checklist to make sure that everything was all good. But as they were going through, the captain noticed a problem. The nose gear light was dark, meaning it was possibly locked. The nose gear is the landing gear in the nose of the airplane, and this meant that it wasn't locking into place. He had, like, engaged the nose gear to land, but it wasn't locking to place to land 
Yeah, so they were pressing the button for the nose gear, like the nose gear button, and it wasn't lighting up. And when it lights up, that indicates that the landing gear has locked into place. Right. Right. So it wasn't lighting up. And they're like, "Uh uh-oh, that's a problem. Mm. So Bob decided the best bet was to try and raise the other landing gear and then put it back down again to see if the nose gear would unlock, kind of like an unplug and replug type situation, you know? They raised and lowered this landing gear a few times to try and get it down, and each time the sounds from that would echo through the main cabin. Trudy Smith, who was one of the flight attendants on board, heard the continual grinding sound of the landing gear, but wasn't concerned at all because she said sometimes things like this happen, but she was kind of annoyed because she thought that it would mean that the plane would get into Miami later than expected. But still, at the front of the plane, the light for the nose gear was not turning on. Well, turn it on. (laughs) Turn it on, then. Captain Bob called to the tower and told them that they were going to have to circle the airport since they didn't have the light to their nose gear. Flight engineer Donald Repo decided to perform a test called the Christmas tree, which basically lights up every warning light in the cockpit to see if they were all working, and the nose gear light failed that test which meant that the bulb most likely had burnt out. But there was still a slim chance for a double failure, meaning both the light bulb and the landing gear weren't working. And they obviously couldn't see it because they're flying. So they don't know if it's a double failure or if it's literally just a, a light bulb burning out. Oh my god. On the ground, air traffic control directed Flight 401 to climb to 2,000 feet and circle away from the airport until the problem had been solved. At the time, co-pilot Albert Stockstill had been flying the plane, but Captain Bob told him to put it in autopilot because Albert was the only one who could reach the nose gear light and pull it off of the panel. This autopilot was one of the most advanced in history and had the ability to fully land the plane on its own. So they set the autopilot to fly at 2,000 feet because they're like, we got to fly 2,000 feet, circle away, and then come back. Easy, right? Not quite. Well, if it works. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) They had autopilot in the 70s? Yeah, one of the most advanced. And they could land planes with autopilot in the 70s. That's crazy. Yeah. I've always wondered this. Have you ever wondered, like, do they even really need pilots anymore? I mean, they need them if something goes wrong. Yeah. But do they never land planes anymore, really? No, I think they do. It just had the capability of landing the plane. And I actually was thinking about this when I was researching it. Like, do we need pilots anymore? But I don't think I would ever trust just like the technology alone because things fail. I mean, obviously, there's also human error and that we're going to talk about that. But also, I'd like to have both, you know? kind of working with each other you know if something if the computer fails hopefully the human can fix it and if the human has error hopefully the computer can fix it kind of deal i'm gonna keep that yeah put bookmark that yeah but yeah i was wondering if they purposely land with pilots manually just so that they keep practicing like look at us lagging again yeah we're We're gonna get another email (laughs) yeah that's true we we don't know anything about airplanes but we like to pretend here we are yeah So co-pilot Albert was flying the plane, but this nose gear light was right in front of him. So Captain Bob was like, put it in autopilot and then you can reach it and take it off the board. That way we can take a closer look at the actual like button itself. So that's exactly what they did. And finally, Albert was able to remove the light from the panel and handed it off to Don Repo to take a look at it. He took the piece, looked at it, pretty much blew on it. You know how you like oh my literally blow on something to like put it back. And he gave it back to Albert to put back into the panel, but now it wouldn't pop back into place. He broke it. Or something. It just was not happening. So the men in the cockpit started arguing about what to do because Albert was trying to push the piece back into place, but Don told him that if he forced it too hard, it would break. And so all four of these men are kind of brainstorming what the best thing to do is. And all of these men are basically brainstorming what the best thing to do is until finally Captain Bob told Don to go under the cockpit to the portion of the plane nicknamed the hellhole to check the landing gear that way. In the main cabin, another aviation engineer was on board named Richard Pregluski, and he took this flight 
very regularly. And at that point, he could tell that the plane was experiencing technical problems because you don't normally just turn away from the airport if there's no like weather issues or things like that. But the plane had been just a the plane had been just above Miami to land, and now they were headed back out toward the Everglades. So out of his window, he saw something strange. He noticed that the plane was in a glide path, which is when the plane is in its descent to land. But they weren't going toward the airport, they're going toward the Everglades. So that was strange. Richard thought this was weird since below them was nothing but dark, deserted swamp of the Florida Everglades. He definitely thought this was weird since they hadn't made an announcement about what was going on, but the plane was still high up enough that he figured they'd make an announcement soon, so he wasn't too concerned. Yet. Yet. Down in the hellhole, there's a small viewing window where Don should have been able to see the front wheels to see if they were locked into place. But it was pitch black out the window, and he couldn't see anything. But when he got back up into the cockpit, they realized that Bob had never switched on the wheel well lights, so they sent him back down to take another look. And I believe Angelo Donadello went down with him, even though he was off-duty, so he's going above and beyond. (laughs) Yeah, they better give him a raise. Or something. Meanwhile, at Miami International Airport, ground controller Charlie Johnson had just finished up with helping another difficult landing and looked back over at the radar and saw that Flight 401 had dropped from 2,000 feet to 900. This was odd, but getting false readings for a few radar sweeps isn't completely unheard of, or at least wasn't. So he radioed into the flight to check in with them and see how they were doing. He asked how things were going, and Captain Bob, completely unaware of the plane's descent, told Charlie that everything was fine and asked if they could turn her back around to come back to the Miami International Airport, as he believed everything with the landing gear was going to be sorted out in just a matter of minutes. Because at this point, both men were down in the hellhole. They figured everything would be fine and then they'd be able to go back and land. So Charlie told him to head left and to get back to the airport. But this was going to take a couple of minutes because now at this point they had been flying away from the airport and they needed to, you know, get back and reline up with the... The runway. The runway. Thank you. I could, you did you see? I was really searching <laughs> yeah, for it. Yeah, the wheels were really turning. Thank you. But what the entire cockpit crew failed to notice was while preoccupied with the burnt out landing gear indicator light, the autopilot had inadvertently been disconnected. And as a result, the aircraft was slowly losing altitude. After the plane had been put in autopilot for the next 80 seconds, the plane maintained level flight, and then it dropped 100 feet, and then again flew level for two more minutes. But because this descent had been so gradual, it went completely unnoticed by the crew. So they virtually could not feel this descent And they completely thought that they were an autopilot staying at 2,000 feet the entire time. In the next 70 seconds, the plane lost only 250 feet, but that was enough to trigger an altitude warning chime located under the engineer's workstation, which was Don Repo. But at the time of the warning chime, Don had been down in the hellhole and the pilots didn't hear it. In another 50 seconds, the plane was half of its assigned altitude. Finally, co-pilot Albert had noticed that their altitude was not 2,000 feet, but by that point, it was already too late. The recorded conversation on the CVR caught the quick exchange between Stockstill and Captain Loft. Basically, co-pilot Albert Stockstill said, we did something to the altitude. And Bob Loft said, what? And he said, we're still at 2,000 feet, right? And he said, hey, what's happening here? And then that's the only thing that's heard until less than 10 seconds later, after this quick exchange, the jetliner crashed into the swamp below. Upon impact, everyone was violently whipped forward, the lights in the cabin were flickering, and there was an explosion that sent a huge fireball through the cabin. The plane was traveling at 227 miles per hour when it hit the ground, so it basically just flew apart. I'm just speechless. Yeah. Oh my god, how can anyone survive? Well, people did, but it was really bad. With the aircraft in mid-turn, 
the left wingtip hit the surface first, and then the left engine and the left landing gear. When the main part of the fuselage hit the ground, it continued to move through the grass and water, basically breaking up the entire airplane as it continued going forward. So this was a gigantic crash site full of debris, and people went flying out of the airplane. Back at ground control in Miami, Charlie Johnson noticed on the radar that Flight 401 now read as being on the ground, which didn't make sense. He was hoping that this was another mistake in the equipment and asked what their altitude was, but got no response back. Just then, ground control received a radio from another plane that said they had seen a big flash to the west of them and said they didn't know what it was, but they wanted to let ground control know. And that big flash was Flight 401 impacting with the ground. Oh impacting? Is that a word? Yeah, we got it. Yeah, you get it. But that's that's what the flash was. I mean, it was just a giant explosion. When the fireball came through the cabin, Richard Pregluski, who had survived the crash, said he remembered feeling the heat of the fire and seeing the flash. But when he tried to breathe in, he couldn't because the fire had taken all of the oxygen out of the air. Isn't that terrifying? That is so terrifying. And that do you have like the little mask thing? No. I've never even... No? I mean, in theory, you would, but... It happened so quickly. It's not like they lost cabin pressure and the masks fell and they were like, "Uh uh-oh, beep, 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 we're going down. It was like, what's going on? We're not at 2,000 feet. Hit. Like, it was just immediate. And nobody knew because it was pitch black outside the window and they couldn't really feel the descent. So it literally came out of nowhere. I can't even imagine going to breathe. And it's fire. And it's nothing. Yeah. The only thing I could compare to it is like, when it's a really cold day and it's windy you like get out of your car and it blows in your face and you try and breathe you go i don't think i've ever experienced that no no it's really cold i I think that was probably worse for him i (laughs) i would wager a guess i i think i I would bet on it yeah i might be i'm not a betting man but if i were i think i would bet on that and that was actually the last thing he remembered until he woke up outside of the plane how did he get out people were literally catapulted out of their seats like, when I say that the the plane completely broke apart, I mean, it was torn open and people were thrown into the swamp. They were literally scattered everywhere. Oh my god. And people survived this, but also people did not. Those who survived the crash were living a nightmare because this plane had crashed right into a desolate swamp in the Everglades, which is full of alligators. Yeah, I was like, where are the gators? They're everywhere. I mean, I'm sure they're deterred by the fire and the actual crash of it all, but like, they're around. That's a nightmare. Richard Pregluski knew that he was in very bad shape because when he looked down, he saw the fact that his clothes were basically hanging off of his body and he had severe cuts down his arms to the point where his skin was like hanging off. He saw how badly he looked But he didn't feel any pain, which he knew was because that he was in shock, which meant that he was really in bad shape. So he just tried his best to keep himself as calm as possible, because at that point, there's not really much else you can do other than try to breathe. So Ron Infantino, another survivor, had been knocked out by the crash. And when he woke up, he was already out of the plane and in the swamp. He woke up completely away from everyone else, And he was on his stomach, basically like in the mud and the water of the swamp. On the flight, his wife, Lily, had been sitting with him, but she was nowhere near him at this point. He had no idea where she was. But now there was another huge problem. The swamp water had doused the flames upon impact, which was great. But now there was around 20,000 kilograms of jet fuel that had leaked into the swamp that everyone was in which meant that a single spark could set a deadly blaze. The first person to come to this terrifying realization was flight attendant Trudy Smith. While she was standing in this swamp water, she yelled out to everyone who could hear her not to light a match, which is so insane because you wake up thinking, oh my God, I survived a plane crash, and now you have to worry about blowing up for a second time. Yeah. And I can't even imagine, like, watching somebody put a cigarette in their mouth. Seriously. I mean, not only 
I mean, you go through a plane crash. Imagine you you smoke cigarettes. I feel like you would definitely want one after yeah. you wake up from a plane crash. So yeah, that was a scary thought. But also, this plane just exploded, and like, there's a ton of electricity and technology on board. If a, just a random spark flew out, you know, it would be game over for everyone. That night, deep in the Everglades, was a man named Bob Marcus, who was driving his airboat, hunting frogs with a friend. No way. Yes. He had seen Flight 401 roar past him above his head before they crashed into the swamp ahead of him. So he literally saw the whole thing. Immediately after seeing the crash, Bob sped toward the crash site, hoping to help whoever he could. When he got there, he just jumped into the swamp without a second thought, hoping to find anyone still alive. But he also could instantly feel the sting of the jet fuel on his skin. That later, after all of this was said and done, he actually had to treat his legs for burns a full week after helping. So just the jet fuel being in the swamp water alone was enough to burn him. Really? Yeah. It's that acidic or... I guess. Whatever. Yeah, I mean, he had burns on his legs, and he was literally just waiting in the water, like, helping people out. Wow. Yeah. Didn't know that. The first person he came across was a man who was still strapped to his seat, but his seat was now sideways in the water. So he was close to drowning, because he was strapped in sideways, and his head was basically, like, in the water, and he had to, like, tilt his head up to not drown, and he was so exhausted and, like hurt that he was having trouble even lifting his head and he almost drowned but bob marcus was able to pull the seat up out of the water and stop this man from drowning which he actually did with dozens of people ron infantino was still laying on his stomach isolated from the others because of the way he was thrown from the crash like i had said but he couldn't move and after some time he started to hear alligators and snakes start to reappear in the weeds around him Ron knew that if anything came up to him, he was completely dead meat because he couldn't defend himself. So he literally just had to lay there and listen to the sounds of the swamp and hope that nothing tried to get him. I mean, I can't think of a much more helpless situation. No, that sounds like one of the worst things that could possibly happen to a person. I know. And if it's really deep in the Everglades, it's probably just a symphony yeah of these sounds i mean they were surrounded by swamp i mean think about the number of alligators and like deadly things that were just lurking in the darkness i don't i actually don't want to think about it so i'm gonna keep moving on let's move on let's move on so as he's listening to the sounds of the swamp hoping to not die that's when he started to hear christmas carols to rally the other survivor spirits Trudy, the flight attendant, had started singing Silent Night and other Christmas carols. So everyone who could basically started like quietly singing Christmas carols. Oh my god. Isn't that insane? I can't imagine that scene. Well, yeah. So Bob's pulling up. Yeah. Saving people from drowning because they literally can't hold their heads up out of water. Yes. And Trudy's singing Silent Night with the rest of the passengers. Yeah, because everyone was hurt so badly that they couldn't even move. They were just, like, trapped there. And they knew that although help would come eventually, they didn't know when, you know? Nobody knew exactly where they were. So a search team would have to locate them before they could actually start to take people away. So this was just to try to keep people's minds off of their terrible wounds and to, like, keep their spirits up, you know? keep them out of the horror. (laughs) Yeah, the actual horror. She said she knew that they weren't going to get out of there in a hurry. It was midnight in the middle of a swamp, and people didn't know where they were yet, so what else was there to do? Within minutes, Coast Guard helicopters had been sent out in search of the crash site, but in the pitch blackness, they couldn't find them. Because, like I said, the... Swamp water had put out the flames of the crash, so it was back to darkness. Oh, and they can't use a flare. Right, but let's thank our lucky stars that Bob Marcus was there because he signaled to the helicopters with his headlamp. He was just flashing the headlamp above his head to hopefully have them see it. Hell yeah, Bob. Yeah, and they flew away, but he kept going, and then he saw them 
turn around and start to head back toward the crash site. So it worked. The helicopter discovered the crash site less than a half an hour after the crash. But to the survivors, it felt as if they had been in the swamp forever. Thankfully, now they knew that they had been located, but it was still going to take quite some time to get everyone out. The nearest landing site for the helicopter was 100 meters away, but Bob got back into his airboat and left to meet up with the rescuers as the helicopter had landed to then ferry them to the crash site. So Bob is a running a full circus over here. You know, he's doing it all. He's pulling people out, he's stopping them from drowning, and he's ferrying the rescuers to the crash site. So it's amazing. A true hero. Seriously. First aboard Bob's boat was Coast Guard rescuer Don Schneck. Bob asked him where the others were, because it was literally just this one rescuer, but Don told him that he was it for now. So Bob drove the airboat out to the area surrounding the crash site, but as they approached, he stopped the boat and told Don that this was as close as he was willing to go because he didn't want to possibly run anyone over. There were bodies just everywhere, and you couldn't see anything. So both of the men jump out of the airboat and start searching the water. As Don approached something large in the water, he realized that it was the nose section of the airplane. And amazingly enough, Don discovered Captain Bob Loft, who had survived the crash, but was still strapped into his seat in the cockpit. And he was in incredibly bad shape. He was in shock. Don could tell from his lacerations that he had broken ribs. So Don tried his best to calm Captain Bob down by telling him to hang in there and that other rescuers were on the way. Being the only rescue person there made Don feel completely inadequate. There was almost nothing he could do. And just then he wondered where the team from Miami was. And as he looked up, he saw about 50 lights headed their way. So it was about to go down. Yeah, that's where they are. Yeah, right. They're coming. First officer Albert Stockstill and Captain Bob Loft both unfortunately died at the scene of the crash. Angelo Donadeo and Don Repo both survived and were taken to the hospital shortly after the whole rescue team had arrived. In all, 76 people survived the crash, 67 of the 136 passengers and 8 of the 10 flight attendants, as well as technical officer Angelo Donadeo, who was in the nose electronics bay or the hellhole with Don Repo at the moment of impact. And unfortunately, Don Repo... He did survive the initial crash, but later died from his injuries at the hospital. So it was a really deadly plane crash, unfortunately. By the morning, all the wounded people had been transported to hospitals. Most of the dead were passengers in the aircraft's midsection. All of the survivors were injured. 60 of them received serious injuries and 17 suffered minor injuries that did not require hospitalization, but the most common injuries were fractures of ribs, spines, pelvises, and lower extremities, and 14 survivors had various degrees of burns. The mud in the swamp had actually absorbed much of the energy of the crash, which lessened the impact of the crash. But the water in the swamp was so thick with mud that it also clogged the wounds of the injured and sustained survivors, preventing them from bleeding to death. Oh my god. Isn't that insane? So the, the mud literally like slowed the plane down or like absorbed the crash, the, like the actual crash, and then also clogged their wounds. So it made it so much less bad. So the Everglades kind of saved them in a way. Yeah. I was going to say... They're kind of lucky that they landed in a place without trees, you know? Yeah. So the mud was great, but it also complicated survivors' recoveries. Their wounds started to become infected, and after a test of the mud in the swamp, they found a deadly organism in the mud. And this organism produced an infection called gas gangrene, which can kill a person in just two days. Those who were affected by this infection needed to be put in a hyperbaric chamber, which is a pressurized container that pumps high levels of oxygen into it, and they needed to stay in this chamber for like two days. And the oxygen basically would get forced into the wounds and kill the bacteria. And this was like one of two ways that 
they could actually save a person who had this gas gangrene. So that's insane. Yeah, isn't it? How they, how did they figure that one out? That the hyperbaric chamber saved people from this very random infection. I don't know. Thank God. Seriously, that's so bizarre to me that you would just get shoved in an oxygen pod and it works. I know. It's crazy. And eight passengers needed to be put in these chambers since the only other way to survive the infection is amputation of the infected limbs. Ron Infantino was one of those survivors who needed to be put in a hyperbaric chamber. However, all of them were in use. So unless one freed up, the doctors told him they would need to amputate his arm before it spread. Thankfully, they were able to find a hyperbaric chamber at a Navy base in Panama City in time for Ron to use it, but had they not, he would have had his arm amputated. But he spent 40 hours in this chamber, and it did save his life and his arm. Isn't that cool? That's pretty sweet. Yeah. Yeah, thank God for that chamber. I know. And just a random military base. Exactly. At the random Navy base in Panama City. Whose job was it to find a hyperbaric chamber? Google it. That's so crazy. But actually not funny at all. And very unfortunately, Ron received devastating news in the hospital that his wife, Lily, had not survived the crash. While they were in the air, Ron and Lily had randomly switched seats when she had gone to use the restroom during the flight. And in the crash, both of them had been thrown from the plane, but Lily ended up under the wing while Ron survived. This memory of switching seats obviously haunted Ron, even though it was completely innocent and there was nothing he could have done about it. But it's just so sad, you know? I mean, how can you not? Of course. Following the crash, there was a massive investigation into how this top-of-the-line jumbo jet had failed. The crash site itself told a lot because the trail of debris from the crash was massive, which meant that the plane hit the swamp almost in the same nose-up position as it would if it were landing at an airport, which meant that the descent was clearly slow and gradual. Maintenance expert Angelo Donadeo was interviewed in the hospital since the rest of the cockpit crew had unfortunately been killed. And he told them that the crew had been trying to fix the light bulb before the crash. This plane was basically brand new and was in perfect condition, so investigators found that there was actually no mechanical reason for the crash, like nothing had failed. In fact, some of the parts of the plane were in such good condition still after the crash that the investigation team gave them back to Eastern Airlines so they could be installed in other airplanes. Whoa. Isn't that a little creepy? I don't think I'd want to fly on a plane that had parts from a crashed airplane. I mean, I guess if they're good still. Yeah. But, you know, don't tell me. Yeah, I don't Don't want to know. Don't tell me. I definitely don't want to know. Just take off. Yeah. Since there was no mechanical reason for the crash, investigators needed to figure out how the descent went unnoticed by everyone in the cockpit. At the top of their list was, quote, subtle incapacitation of the pilot. When they received Captain Bob Loft's autopsy results, it was discovered that he had a large, undetected tumor growing in his brain. Are you kidding me? No, and it pressed into the part of his brain responsible for sight. Medical records revealed that between the ages of 50 and 52, the vision in the pilot's left eye had rapidly deteriorated, which led them to believe that he may have had reduced peripheral vision. As his attention was focused on the malfunctioning light, he may not have noticed the dial warnings on his altimeter or altitude. Yeah, altitude meter. I hope I said that right. But anyway, they interviewed people who knew Bob Loft. And as far as his family and friends knew, he had perfect vision. He was very skilled at shooting and was able to hit very small targets. And he had recently passed a medical He had been issued corrective glasses for flying or like reading glasses, but he had passed this physical, you know, so it wouldn't make sense that his vision was dangerously impaired. He was 55, so it's pretty normal for him to need reading glasses. 
And Dr. Joe Davis, who did the autopsy, agreed that even though the tumor had been pressing on the areas of his brain that controlled vision, there was no reason to think that it had begun to affect him yet. So he felt that it had nothing to do with the crash. Isn't that kind of crazy, though? They're just like, they just discover this brain tumor that's pressing on his, you know, vision part. Yeah, that's so weird. And then it didn't even affect it, apparently? No, yeah, they just discovered this tumor, and they're like, oh, he had one. That sucks. Like, that's it. Yeah. It's insane. So investigators wondered if the autopilot had malfunctioned, but since the plane's computer had survived, they were actually installed into another plane who flew the exact same flight path as Flight 401, and the autopilot held them at 2,000 feet for the flight. So it wasn't the autopilot. So then they moved on to why hadn't the Miami Tower alert the crew that their plane was dropping? The world's first three-dimensional radar had recently been installed there, which meant that controller Charlie Johnson knew the location, the altitude, and the speed of Flight 401 at all times. Investigators listened back to the tapes from that night, and they discovered that there was another plane that had an emergency on board that took up almost all of Charlie Johnson's attention. National Airlines Flight 607 was coming into land just ahead of Flight 401, and it was having its own problems with its landing gear. So Charlie Johnson was preoccupied with that flight. He had given Flight 401 to someone else to look after, But as he finished up with Flight 607, Flight 401 was then given back to him, even though he was still dealing with the aftermath of this other flight. And although he saw the plane had been dropping in altitude, sometimes the radar at that time would give false readings. And also it was determined that keeping track of the airline's altitude wasn't a part of his job as a controller. It was only to keep the planes from smashing into each other. But it all came... Yeah. So it was determined that it wasn't Charlie Johnson's fault either. It all came down to pretty much crew distraction. They were all so tunnel visioned into the malfunctioning light bulb that they missed the warning sound of the altitude change that was on Don Repo's station. But remember, he was in the hellhole. Investigators interviewed a lot of other pilots to get their input on this, and they admitted that many of them placed a lot of trust into these fancy new autopilots, and they may have become overly dependent on the technology. So this cockpit crew was so confident in their equipment that they didn't monitor things as closely as they should have. But that still didn't answer the question as to why the autopilot was off. It turned out that there was a pressure switch in the control wheel that pilots of that aircraft had to kind of figure out on their own. They were never told about this pressure switch. Another pilot who had flown that 1011 before this crew had experienced this pressure switch turning off the autopilot when he dropped a map on the ground as he was flying, and when he bent down to pick it up, he bumped the wheel. But when he got back up from picking up the map, he immediately noticed that the altitude monitor on the autopilot had turned off and was able to just turn it back on no problem. But with everything else going on in the cockpit at the time before the crash, this switch had gone completely unnoticed by Bob Loft. Wait, so you push on the wheel and it turns it off? Yes, because the whole idea behind it was in the event of an emergency... If you needed to very quickly take back control of the airplane, they wanted to make it so pilots could just grab the wheel and they would be in full control instead of having to fumble with the autopilot like switches. Mm. So it, it makes sense, but also the fact that they never told the pilots that this switch was there is insane. They had to pretty much figure it out on their own and Bob Loft obviously didn't. Yeah. I mean, let's say that there even was a scenario where they would have to do that. He wouldn't do that because he didn't know. He would be fumbling around with the switch. Well, yeah, but I mean, at least this other pilot, when he accidentally turned off this autopilot with the switch in the wheel, it was during the daytime, I think. So he was able to see the plane descending, but Bob Loft and the crew in that cockpit didn't see anything because it was completely pitch black out. Right. It's insane. 
Using the CVR, investigators believed that as Captain Loft had turned around to tell Don Repo to go down into the hellhole, he had bumped into his wheel, which switched off the altitude control and started the gradual descent. So they know exactly when this happened because they had the... the the airplane computers kind of track everything and record everything. So they matched up the CVR to the exact time that the air, the airplane started to descend and they figured out that he turned around and bumped his wheel. Isn't that kind of insane? Yeah. I mean, the forensic work that they're able to do, yeah. that's even the word you use is insane. Yeah. Investigative really work cool. for sure. A training director for Eastern Airlines confirmed that pilots hadn't been taught that a small bump could disengage the autopilot. So he was like, yeah, we didn't train him. Isn't that insane? Like, how could you not train your pilots for every single, like, switch and thing? I I don't get it. Yeah. I mean, I guess it was the 70s, so things were different, but also, my God. (laughs) Yeah. So did they not tell them that a small bump could do it, or did they just not tell them about the switch at all? They didn't tell them about the switch at all. And... Clearly, it was a lot more sensitive than they initially thought. Yeah. Yeah. That's was, a problem. It was all bad. It was also discovered that although the light bulb had burnt out on the nose gear, the landing gear was actually locked in place. So they would have been completely fine to land as normal, but they didn't know that. So the only piece of the plane that failed was a $12 light bulb. That's oh my it. God. And so, people died because of a $12 light bulb. Yes. I mean, a lot of other reasons, but yes, essentially because of a $12 light bulb. So for all of those reasons, the plane crashed. This event was a pivotal moment in aviation safety history. And in the following 10 to 15 years, it led to real changes in the way airlines treated the cockpit and trained its crew. It also brought about changes in new regulations instructing air traffic controllers to warn pilots when they're getting close to the ground. So it brought about a lot of safety changes, which is very good. By the late 1970s, NASA began to explore a new behavioral science designed to reduce pilot error called crew resource management, which was centered around the pilot not being the one and only leader, but rather as the pilot, you need to lead the cockpit crew and also need to listen and interact with the crew and work as a team. Their first job when something goes wrong is to maintain control of the aircraft or assign it to someone else as they sort out whatever issue they're dealing with, and the crew of Flight 401 had not been taught that. But that's actually not all, and this story took a very surprising turn. Okay, so over the following months and years, stories began circulating that employees of Eastern Airlines and numerous passengers had reported sightings of the dead crew members. Captain Robert Loft and second officer Don Repo sitting on board other L-1011s. These stories speculated that parts of the crashed aircraft were salvaged after the investigation and refitted into other L-1011s, and the reported hauntings were said to have been seen on the other planes that used those spare parts. Oh my god. Isn't that insane? That's ridiculous. So how many people reported seeing them? I don't have a number, but apparently crew and passengers were seeing apparitions of these dead crew members, which is very dark. I mean, yeah. you don't want to fuck with. <laughs> yeah, I could... You don't want to mess with the dead chills. crew members, dead passengers. It's a very serious thing. So I, I, I would hope that people weren't making it up. You know, that'd be yeah. really distasteful. Gossip regarding the sightings of the spirits of Don Repo and Bob Loft spread throughout Eastern Airlines to the point where Eastern's management warned employees that they could face dismissal if caught spreading ghost stories. So it got so serious, they're like, we will fire you if you talk about this. While Eastern Airlines publicly denied their planes were haunted, they reportedly removed all of the salvaged parts from their L-1011 fleet. Isn't that ridiculous? <laughs> that's, that's really funny to me. I know. They're like, it's not real, but also the parts are gone. Yeah, so. we're going to 
do some refitting. Literally. So over time, the reported ghost sighting stopped. And an original floorboard from Flight 401 remains in the archives at History Miami in southern Florida. And pieces of Flight 401's wreckage can also be found in Ed and Lorraine Warren's Occult Museum in the Monroe. The Occult Museum? Yeah. Do you know about Ed and Lorraine Warren's museum of, like, cursed items? No. Oh, it's... it's. I don't think we're gone. Ghost history... Are we going? No, we're not going. Eh. But uh, it's pretty famous. So the fact that a piece of this airplane wreckage is in their museum is pretty fitting. Also, the Ghosts of Flight 401 was made into a book as well as a TV film on NBC in 1978. (laughs) And a musician, Bob Welch, also recorded a song titled The Ghosts of Flight 401. So this was... This went on in in pop culture, which is kind of crazy. Eastern Airlines CEO Frank Borman called the ghost story surrounding the crash garbage. So I'm sure he didn't want that surrounding his, you know, company. It's not good for the brand. No. Yeah. But isn't that insane? They had all these ghost stories. Yeah. I don't understand how the paranormal works or even if it's real, but... It's kind of hard to, like, deny all these stories. Yeah. And it's insane to me that it's possible that pieces of a plane carry with them ghosts of the crew. Yeah, isn't that kind of a weird thought? Yeah. And then there's, like, a pop culture element to it. Also, Bob Welch, a more creative name, Yeah, perhaps, right? Maybe. You know? But, I like, would... I can't imagine being, like, part of the families you know no it's just like kind of a meme yeah that's well that's what i was gonna say is i hope that the people who believed that they saw these ghosts if there actually were people like that weren't like spreading this story as like a yeah like a funny tale or something like oh i saw a ghost like it's so not funny at all and i i could imagine this not actually being true because it's not out of the realm of possibility for like a crew member to be joking with another crew member and be like, I saw a ghost. It was Bob loft. Like, uh, we're on the plane. So I, (laughs) but you know what I mean though? Like people do that kind of shit. So, I mean, I'm not saying it's not real because God only knows I love ghost stories and I believe in that shit, but I also could see this being very false and like a cruel joke. So we'll never actually know, but it is kind of an interesting twist in this like insane story that this is also kind of an element of what happened. Yeah. But anyway, a positive thing that happened in the aftermath of the crash was Robert Marcus. For his efforts, he received the Humanitarian Award from the National Air Disaster Alliance Foundation and the Alumatech Airboat Hero Award from the American Airboat Search and Rescue Association. And many people came out to the site of the crash in the Everglades and honored him for his bravery. So that's a really positive thing. And that is the story of the crash of Flight 401. This is just an incredible story of like how chance comes together in the worst way possible. Seriously, like human error for sure. Yeah, and then Bob Marcus happens to be catching frogs yeah. in this part of the Everglades where at, a plane crashes. At midnight. At midnight. Like, what are the chances? And then how many lives did he save? You said, like, probably... Dozens. Dozens. No doubt. Know, just from drowning. Yeah. And then the mud... Yeah. ...saved them, but also gave them gangrene. Yeah. And then they had to be put in an oxygen pod to uh-huh. be saved. Isn't this all crazy? Then And then there's ghosts. Then from the ashes. Literally. The planes rise again. Yeah. In different planes. Mm-hmm. And then they're taken away. I mean, it's just... But only apparently Don Repo and Bob Loft. Those are apparently the only ghosts that people reported seeing. So I don't know. But yeah, it's just yeah. a bonker story. I mean, there's so many terrible things that happened. Maybe I shouldn't describe it as bonkers. Is that an insensitive word to use? You kind of gave know. me a face. We, we all, I, I, I always just cringe at like what people might think about it. Yeah. But 
I mean, we're just talking. This, yeah, I, it, I hope and people... to be honest, can you argue against the story being a little bonkers? No, definitely not. And I hope you guys know that we mean nothing but respect and we never want to come off as being insensitive and we yeah. care about these survivors and the families that have lost people so much. So, yeah, yeah it, but it is, it's just difficult to talk about sometimes. You don't know exactly what to say. Yeah, and it's all on the fly. For sure. So. Exactly. Um, but anyway, let's have a little bit of a palate cleanser. What is your good thing? You go first. Okay. My good thing is that three of my good friends from home, New York, Long Island, are coming to visit us in LA. And it's very exciting. And we're going to have a lot of fun. Oh, yeah. I'm excited too. But the, the origin of Hara, Long what? Island. Oh, because, well, yeah, where people say Harable. You know. Yeah, it's anyway. an accent. It's cool. We love Long Island. <laughs> we love it over there. But um, it's yeah. going to be kind of an interesting couple of days because the three of them are staying in our one-bedroom apartment with us, which is not very big. So it's going to be a fun time. <laughs> so we're doing all right. We're not doing that well. You know? <laughs> no, we're we great. We got a one-bedroom. No, but it's going to be like the, the best kind of chaotic, you know? It's going to be fun. True. So anyway, what's your good thing? My good thing is that we celebrated another friend's birthday. Yeah. We went out to somewhere. It was called Soulmate. It It was a good restaurant. Oh, my God. This restaurant was so good. Really pricey, really small food. (laughs) But but that's, you know, epitome of LA. I know. But the food that you did get was was really good. Yeah. Yeah. And then the cake. Oh, my God. The cake. (laughs) So. Yeah. Shout out, Lauren. Happy birthday. Happy birthday. And uh, yeah, I had a good time. Hell yeah. Anyways, thank you guys so much for listening. If you would like to check out all the pictures we post of all the stories we talk about, check us out on Instagram at nottoday underscore podcast. If you would like some bonus content that you get to vote on yourself and a little bit of a Discord community, check us out on Patreon at patreon.com slash nottodaypodcast. If you or anyone you know has a story that you would like to share with us and hear on an upcoming listeners episode, send it to notodaypodcast at gmail.com we have a tiktok that is not today podcast and a twitter that is not today podcast but the t on the end of podcast is a three because that makes sense and just keep breathing yeah yeah Ah!